HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by the Sexton Single Malt Irish Whiskey, the best-selling Irish single malt in the U.S. The Sexton is an unexpected modern malt for the everyman, rich in hue, approachable in taste, and memorable in character. Learn more at thesexton.com. I'm HRN Communications Director Kat Johnson with a preview of this week's episode of Meat in 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup. This week, we're focusing on water. You'll hear some disturbing news from an NYC investigative reporter. Here lies the problem, how much we don't know about water tanks. Katie Kiefer reports on water woes in the heartland. Their water is heavily polluted with nitrates, which are coming from agricultural chemical applications on fields and running off into their water table. And we'll check in with Dave Arnold, who's about to open a new bar that will serve some pretty fancy H2O. It is hardcore. So pour up a tall glass of ice water and be refreshed by this week's episode of Meat in 3, available on heritageradionetwork.org, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, and welcome to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. And on today's episode, Christina Leckie runs Reynard, a wood-fire restaurant in Brooklyn's Wythe Hotel, with an ambition of being 100% sustainable. There's a whole animal butchery program, a 24-hour cooking schedule, food scraps are made into meals, as well as dyeing fabrics. While food is at the, you know, one of the top emitters of greenhouse gas, Leckie is the opposite of putting out hot air. She's putting her operations money where her mouth is, funding farmers as natural resources, a return on investment we can actually relish. And welcome to the studio, Christina. Hi, thanks for having Um, me. This term 100% sustainable we'll get to because I think it's been jargon in the food industry for a while and maybe a misnomer for a while, but it inherently means something different to every person. But let's start at the origins of who you are and Philadelphia. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Other than, you know, the Philly (laughs) cheesesteak, what is Philly even known for food wise? Uh, hmm. I mean, I think it's known for definitely for me, Philadelphia at least meant going to the Italian market, uh, there's also a pretty large Vietnamese markets there and Mexican markets. So for me, it's it's like a tiny pocket of what New York is in just a smaller, more concentrated scale. Um, 
I didn't really eat a lot of Philly cheesesteaks growing up, unfortunately. <laughs> right? I'm not an expert. Or fortunately. Or I mean, fortunately, they're wonderful yeah. at the certain hour of the night. Sure. Um, I don't know <laughs> if I necessarily go to that city for just that. But it, it's two weeks away from school being out. Sure. And it sounds like summers at your grandparents' house in the suburbs were really the formative food experience for sure. you. My, my grandparents were from Italy. Um, they were very old world and old school um, in the sense that I guess the only thing that was different was that my grandfather would go to work all day, my grandmother would stay home, and he was so controlling over the food that he would come home after working all day and cook the meal because he didn't trust my grandmother <laughs> to do the cooking either. Um, was there ever a taste test to see who actually was <laughs> the better cook? They would, they would, yes, they would do that for breakfast, and then they would ask me who made me the better breakfast, and I would always concede that it was my grandfather, so I'm <laughs> sure I fed the flames of... Yeah. Uh, the hierarchy in the kitchen there. But, um, yeah, for me, that was sort of, you know, what sort of sparked my interest in in understanding what kind of slow food was. They had a very large, extensive garden. Um, you know, he took, he took doing all the steps in the processes very seriously, making pastas in-house, uh, you know, just slow braises, slow cooking, you know, lo- like long you know, three-hour meals on a Sunday starting at, like, 2.30 in the afternoon. Um, big band playing in the background on the radio. And, you know, it was just... It was it was not what I experienced at home. What at home was two very stressed-out working parents barely getting a meal and time on a table for their kids to eat before, you know, we had to go to bed first before school the next day. And we would definitely slow things down on Sundays. But it was, you know, it often felt very harried, at my at my parents' house, and there it was sort of it was sort of a sanctuary, you know. That, that hectic, frenetic nature that it sounds like your parents had is, is similar to the life of a chef. Because as much as you want to relish in that slow food world, for sure, you don't really get to have that time to yourself. If you see me cooking at home for myself, <laughs> it's sort of I, it's a little embarrassing. I feel like if I yeah, I don't definitely show the love to myself that I show my customers. So in reading your chronology, um, I don't know what comes first: a visit to Japan as part of a cultural exchange, or studying fashion merchandising at Philadelphia University. Japan came first. Yeah, why? Why were you ever there? Uh, I've never. I was a junior in high school. I'd never been on a plane before. Uh, it seems like a really good opportunity to just go all in, like, like, fuck it. Like if I've never, like now's the time to go on this trip. I begged my family for money to sponsor me to go. Um, I don't know why I wanted to go. I just, I wanted to do something different. And this was the first time I felt like I was able to make that kind of choice for myself. Um, and yeah, it sort of changed my whole thinking about food again and culture and, not missing being at home, you know, <laughs> being out on my own for the first time and being quite pleased with how that felt. Um, yeah, it shaped a lot. But at the same time, you were going into fashion merchandising, and that's what you studied in college. Um, but there was this draw from local restaurants and working in them. Sure. I mean, th- I definitely had to, you know, I, I was fortunate enough to get some significant scholarships to go to the university that I went to, but I still had to make ends meet on my own. And often found myself hostessing, waitressing, you know, working with, uh, you know, my neighbor owned some restaurants in Chestnut Hill in an area of Philadelphia. And, you know, just by the time I was done, I sort of felt 
like I started to see what my peers, what kind of jobs they were getting in the fashion realm, be it a designer or a, and it just felt like, oh man, I'm going to really have to start from the bottom. It just didn't feel like immediate gratification. And I sort of started to really love the vibe in the kitchen and loved being a part of that and decided that like, maybe I should just start cooking, you know, still being, being very studious, felt like I should go to culinary school, went to culinary school, didn't like culinary school and just started cooking basically. But you didn't start from the bottom like everyone else. I mean, I started, (laughs) but you know what the thing about cooking is even at the bottom of the bottom, there's so much instant, you know, you're peeling a vegetable and the vegetables peel. There's like a beginning and an end. I feel like there, and there's gratification, you know, you're immediately feeding customers or you're, I don't know. It just felt like more, at least for me, and maybe that's why I'm still doing what I'm doing. It, it was like just a, I fell into my passion, but I just felt more gratified and more part of a team and, and more excited than like, say, like grunting it out, like being an unpaid extern for a really long time in a big corporate, you know, fashion environment. It just didn't seem like that was going to be what I wanted to be doing. I wanted to be like on my feet, running around, tangible, like doing things, you know. And seemingly you were there at a vibrant time in Philadelphia's dining scene. You spent time at Striped Bass with Alfred Portale and Christopher Lee. And for people that don't know those names, um, can you tell me of their pedigree and who they are? Yeah, I mean, Alfred Portale is like, you know, he's like the OG chef of New York, you know, has Gotham Bar and Grill, like, really, I felt like he branched out for that project, but then sort of, it didn't really work out for him. And he just went back to doing Gotham, which is, you know, in Chelsea, that's been running, you know, seamlessly for many, 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 I don't even know how many 20, like, it's been a really long time and uh, created a type of cuisine at the time when he first started that was very new to the culinary world. Um, And, you know, Christopher Lee was sort of his protege in that project. And went on, I ended up going to New York with him and going on to, uh, you know, be a part of a really amazing two Michelin star restaurant experience. Um, yeah. It was fish focused. Striped bass was, uh, all, I feel like maybe we had one meat dish, but it was all fish. So, and at the time there was definitely not this local sustainable, that was not the ethos, (laughs) you know, it was definitely like flying fish from all over all over the world, getting, like, the best of the best from everywhere, which in one way is great because you get exposed to so many things very quickly and very easily. So you're seeing, like, all different types of fish from all over that I would have never seen if I hadn't done that. So it was great. I'm sure the ingredient ilk uh, was similar at guilt when you spent Totally. I mean, the... I was... Yeah, we had we were able to work and use the best of the best of everything, get in so many different things and just flavor combinations and flavor profiles. And yeah, again, just pure exposure to the finest ingredients really helped shape my like formative years. I wouldn't say that spotted pig didn't have the finest ingredients, but it did, but it was presented in a completely different way than the echelons of, you know, striped bass and gilt. So what kind of food, uh, rustic might not be the right term, but what kind of food was cooked there, was presented there? What was the overall feel? At Spotted Pig? Yeah. Yeah, I didn't work at Spotted Pig, but at the Breslin. Yeah. um, I mean, you know, April Bloomfield is known for, you know, intensely and very focused 
focused, like high end source of ingredients, but yes, present it in a very simple way, letting the carrot be the carrot on the dish, letting the, you know, the beautiful meat sourced in the perfect way, be the meat on the dish and not try to like confuse the diner or confuse the guest with 50 different components or like manipulating it in any way. It was meant to be pure, pure, you know, high food served very simply, um, which is equally hard to achieve. If not harder. Yeah. Because you have nothing to hide. You can't hide behind a cool garnish or, you know, and I think that's what sort of drew, drew me to working with her was sort of that, like, I was like, I would go to the Spotted Pig often when I was working at Guilt and just be, Mar- like would marvel at like the simplicity of the salads that I would eat and the complexity of flavors because I was like the one weird person that wasn't going there to eat nudie chicken liver or the burger. I was like literally going there randomly just for the vegetables. That radish salad. Yeah. I mean, there's so many like those like epiphany three ingredient dishes that were like, what the heck? Like I've never, so that, you know, that sparked my interest about her and, um, and that's sort of, I think, inevitably why we fell into, you know, I fell into working with her. Yeah, and John Dory's similar, too. You're, you're serving such subtle seafood that you can't overzealously, you know, zest something on top. And Again, yeah, it's just we were, you know, really dedicated to our sourcing, to our local, local fishermen, really trying to find, like, the best of the best serving it, you know, and just really not trying to mess with stuff too much, you know. I remember one of the dishes that I actually helped come up with there, which was like this parsley toast. And it was literally just like, like parsley, anchovies, chili, really good olive oil. And you'd smear it on like grilled bread. And it was like, people would go crazy for it. And you're just like, this is just parsley. You know, this seems like something I just recently talked to Ruth Rogers yeah. of uh, River Cafe. And I know you've spent an immersive trip there yeah sounds like her kind of cooking as well totally what, what what are these trips i know river cafe was one you did wood fire cooking with francis malman yeah. argentina uh what are their singular takeaways how simple is their food or how complex is their ideology uh i think their ideology is complex because they've spent you know a bulk of their life sort of creating this sort of ethos and uh this sort of structure and like they are such definitive people in our industry. Um, and I don't think, you know, it, it, they don't get wooed by trends or by, you know, fads, you know, they're not like all of a sudden wanting to be middle Eastern or, you know, doing Japanese food. They're very like much just, they're very comfortable with their palate, how they cook their food, how they prepare it and have been churning out like very solid, dishes for years and years and years and I think the food is simplistic I think the sourcing is very intense I mean I remember being at River Cafe again I wouldn't necessarily say everything was local it was like going to Italy to find the best olive oil you could ever find strawberries from France being shipped in like you know it was their sourcing was so intense but I mean literally walk in the walk-in and just have like all of Europe at your disposal and the finest ingredients at their peak time, which was like, wow, like it's, it's a complex thing to run, you know, and, and to really work on that sourcing that takes years of time and building really good relationships. So through that time and travels, do you actually have tenants of how you cook what you cook? Could you actually write out your commandments and put them on the wall at your restaurant? Uh, I'm, they feel like yes, but also I feel like really happy to understand that I've just coming into myself as a singular chef and um, 
I think I definitely have an idea of what I'm doing and who I am as a chef, but I think I'm still learning how I want to continue my craft and who I want to be years to come. Excellent. On that, we're going to take a quick note and come back and hear more from Christina Lecky of Reynard. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm Souther Teague of Moria Margo and co-host of The Speakeasy on Heritage Radio Network. This episode is brought to you by the Sexton Single Malt Irish Whiskey, a new and unexpected modern malt for the everyman. The whiskey is made from 100% Irish malted barley, triple distilled for smoothness in copper pot stills, and consciously aged for four years in Oloroso sherry butts. My favorite part about the Sexton is that sherry influence from those Oloroso sherry butts. They're the large sherry uh, barrels that have been used. And then the, uh, the whiskey gets aged in them for four years, giving them this sort of nutty, almost savory quality. Um, the copper pot still makes for an extremely smooth finish. Um, I like it in a highball or just neat. Uh, every time I have a sip, I, I want another one. So next time you're gathered with friends or posted up at your favorite bar, reach for The Sexton, the best-selling Irish single malt in North America. You can learn more at thesexton.com. Hey, and welcome back to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkham, here today with Christina Leckie of Reynard at the White Hotel here in Brooklyn. And Reynard is a hotel restaurant owned by the Tarlow Group that mm-hmm. has Marlowe and Sons and Marlowe and Daughters and yep. Diner. But it's a hotel restaurant like no other because what you're doing there is trying to create a 100% sustainable restaurant. What what does that mean to you? Yeah, I mean, it means that I have a giant <laughs> uphill battle and I'm, I'm almost worried that I don't know if anything is ever going to be 100% sustainable. And, you know, you know, you mentioned earlier just like a lot of talk of jargon and like what people are trying to, you know, trying to do and what really is the actual is sort of the challenge that I faced. I, I feel like I went to Europe and I saw so many places doing this amazing sustainable sustainability stuff in all their initiatives and I was like very much like we're going to be able to do this and I just think there's a lot more flexibility elsewhere there is sort of like New York is a bit mired in and set in its ways as far as how they do business how as far as how people handle packaging I think the thing that really upsets me and I think I've spoken about before is just the package waste of the way we receive goods and how like yes they're getting recycled, but you're taking these perfectly fine boxes or things like shipped in styrofoam or brought to you in styrofoam. And, you know, you're immediately throwing them in the trash. And like I said, yes, they go to the recycling, but the amount of energy and waste that even goes into taking like a box that is fine to then take it to a recycling plant to get broken down into some, you know, like it just, that's the stuff that really sort of upsets me. And that's the biggest challenge that I've sort of had is getting purveyors to, like get 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 with the pro, like get on my page about this. Um, I've known chefs that have literally handed rubber bands back to purveyors, yeah, saying I mean, like, "Use I, these again." Yeah, I don't want them. Like, yeah. please. Or like, why? You know, we work with some amazing farms, but then there are farms that are get you know over the years get bigger and bigger, and they so now they sell to restaurants, but they also sell to like grocery stores or. And the way that they now give you the stuff is like as if we are in a grocery store and it's like, I don't want 
or need any of these ties or twists or rubber bands or, you know, the fancy stickers for the individual tomato. You know, I don't, please do not give me, you know, why can't we, why can't we do that? And it's so interesting because I feel like my friends who run restaurants in California or in Europe, it's like so much easier to get people to get on the, on the same page as that. Um, I know you're outspoken on the other end of this, too, because I've heard you say order only what you're going to consume because takeaway, yeah, takeaway I containers mean, triples the waste. Yeah, I know. I wish. Yeah. You know, it's 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 all a really big problem, you know, and I think we're, we're definitely trying and we're definitely like we try to just bring in what we're going to use. We we definitely try really hard if any sort of byproduct is either going into family meal, it's getting fermented, it's getting like brined or um, powdered, you know, we just don't really let things go into the trash that easily. I'm now taking, you know, like we we're using bluefish right now, which is obviously a really sustainable fish. Um, but the bones are not the best for stock because of the blood, you know, they're a bit bloody and it's a bit too flavorful, but I'm just, I've been like drying them out in the hearth and adding it like you would add bonito to dashi. Um, so that's like, you know, it's just like every, like every day, it's like the challenge of like, what can we do with this and how, and you know, and I think it's exciting to, to have that sort of thought process. You know, I think if Reynard was a smaller restaurant and there were less services and less moving parts and less events, we would be able to be even tighter and tighter. And I see it with the smaller restaurants of my friends that I think they're doing amazing jobs. And I think so for me, the challenge is it's just such a, it's a bigger picture property like breakfast lunch dinner huge events program there's so many moving parts that it's really really challenging to sort of make sure that we're doing the exact right thing but it's also why you're able to do whole animal cooking and whole totally. butchery because you have all these extensions sure no and it's great like we you know we get in what we need and we're using everything that we you know that we're that we need to use and it's it's awesome like to be able to get in just a whole a half a cow every week and to get in a, a whole pig every other week or, or lamb every week it's you know and then have all the awesome parts of all those animals and get to make sausages or hot dogs or um you know bone broths and you know use the offal for different things and you know for me that feels great we're using all the fat we rest the meat in its own fat we you know, there's so many different, you know, I feel like that's great. We're not buying like cryovac pieces of meat and, and serving just those things. You know, we can't always have ribeye on the menu. We're teaching customers about, you know, off cuts. Like I think the program, since I started, we were, they were using everything. Of course, I think for the cuts that they weren't super comfortable selling, they were going the family meal. Now I feel like we're, we're really doing a great job at making a profit on a lot of cuts that like people wouldn't normally see on a menu. And I think customers are, you know, I think people appreciate it and are slowly being educated about it. I mean, that's why I love that the, there are giblets on the roast chicken. Sure. So it, it's not just, you know, this comes from that and it's yeah. not just relegated to Thanksgiving, but that delicious and tasty always. And you, you should yeah. really think about eating those parts. Yeah. yeah, it's nutrition. This also constitutes a 24-hour cooking schedule. Is that hearth literally lit all the time? Not the hearth, but we have a wood oven. So there's always... At the end of the night, we shovel any of the leftover uh, hardwood or, or coals into the wood oven. And then 
just recently we we stopped, but we will start again with the change of vegetables. Um, in the winter, we were doing pumpkins, we were cooking beans, we were you know roasting like beets and stuff overnight in there just to utilize all the energy that's still you know the oven's at 200 300 400 degrees at the end of the night like why not instead of burning more coal the next day why not make sure we're utilizing um the entire bit of you know of heat that's left from the end of service um we take some of the ashes we were like roasting vegetables in the ashes just making like a slurry out of like basically char you know wood wood ash and water and throwing making a slurry putting the vegetables in there and then doing almost like a salt bake back into the fire which was really cool too so i know you say you utilize food scraps but it doesn't sound like you do anymore because they're already used for something so they're no no longer scraps (laughs) so uh it's a semiotics problem true but you're using onion skins to make soups you're using dill and other herb stems to make vinaigrettes. Um, old lemons are being turned into yogurt and granola and you dehydrate, like you said, yeah. and, and smoke and powderize everything. Yeah. Um, what are scraps that you haven't figured out how to use yet? Man, I don't... Hmm. If you say none, that's a good problem to I don't, have. Yeah, <laughs> I want to say that we're doing, you know, like fava bean pods right now. We make broths and stocks out of. We like... Even we were getting green chickpeas in, and again, like just, I just feel like there's always an opportunity and I, to like fortify some sort of flavors. I, I haven't really come across much that can't be sort of folded into something else. Like, I mean, eventually you have to put, you know, after it's given everything that it has to give, it goes into the trash, but or the compost. But um, I would say, I, I yeah, I'm like. Rack and kale stems, we ferment. Like, yeah, I feel like we use, you know, I haven't come across something yet that I'm like, oh, crap. Yeah. But maybe I'm not. I'm, there, I'm sure there's a vegetable that I'm not thinking of. Well, one of my favorite things that you utilize is whey. And yeah. can you explain what whey is and how you use it in your cooking? Well, the, you know, I talked about the sort of challenges of working in a place that's open for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. But one of the good things about it is you see all the services. So you're, you know, and if you're committed to making everything in house, like, like we are, we make our yogurt for breakfast. Um, and in turn, we have a ton of way. We sell a lot of yogurt. It's a hotel and it's a breakfast spot. So, um, I love cooking things in whey, vegetables. Right now we're doing rabbit braised in whey. Um, and it just, what's so great about it, it's a tenderizer, so it tenderizes the meat. Um, like we do for events like pork pork butts or pork shoulders uh, braised in whey as well. Um, so it tenderizes, it brings a tartness, so there's a level of acidity and sourness to it, adding character to anything, um, you know, so another flavor component. And again, a great utilization of products, so, you know, I don't know. There's like almost never enough whey. I mean, we make butter and we make ricotta. So we, we have a lot of whey in house. Yeah. And I always used to think of whey as cheese water and it yeah. used to go down the drains of a lot of commercial dairies yeah. because there wasn't markets for it. But yeah, I mean, people sell it now. I mean, yeah. you see the companies <laughs> that like have like passion fruit whey and I'm like genius. Like, yeah. I wonder if they're making money on it. I'm sure they are, but it's like genius. Cause it's like literally it's a total byproduct. Yeah. Well, you know, 
what you do with food scraps too gets you outside of the food line itself, yeah. outside of you know the culinary industry, and that you've been actually using food scraps to dye materials, fabrics. Sure. So what is that process? I know some things turn certain colors in alkaline, some things in yeah, acid. Yeah, I'm really trying to figure out a way. Well, I'm, I'm figuring out a way of doing it the most natural way possible by not adding any sort of artificial chemicals because then obviously then I'm adding, you know, I'm adding an, I'm making another problem and that's for the water, you know, and dumping that down a drain. So what I'm doing is just the purest form and it's essentially like making a tea, you know, you steep... I'm able to save tons of onion peels. Um, right now we have a turmeric dish on the menu. So we're juicing all the turmeric and dying, you know, dying, I'm playing with dying things with turmeric. And, you know, what's great is that I don't really think I need any mordants or any sort of uh, alkalining things to sort of adhere the color. It's doing it quite naturally. And the fading is pretty minimal. And it's, you know, for me, kind of an exciting down-the-road project that I'd like, you know, now that I feel like I'm sort of more and more set up at my job that I can start really focusing on. So anything that stains your hands or your teeth, like red charred stems, you should think for dyeing fabrics. Yeah, it's pretty, you know, it's pretty remarkable how much, how much color, like, you know, all of our, all of our vegetable products actually give. I mean, almost all of them sort of give a little something. I think it's just a matter of how much you can collect to really make a concentrated steep. So you mentioned traveling and being in Europe and things that are able to be done there and not here. I want to go back to that with another question. What are the inspiring food scenes around the world for you? And what are the things that you hope to bring back here food-wise, but also ethically? Um, I have a friend in, well, two of the places, well, one, the one of the biggest places that I went to was in Copenhagen and it's called Amas. And I just think that, that that, uh, Matt Orlando is doing and his team are doing such an amazing job at like really, really full utilization. I mean, their little pantry, it's not little, but their like little like ferment room is just so impressive. They just started this full composting project. They're like composting. They have space, you know, that's sort of, they have a lot, they have, they have the ability to have land. I have no idea what, how much it costs, but it seems like a lot less stressful than doing something like this in New York. Um, and, you know, they're just, they're just really, really thoughtful and really, really great innovators and have a lot of skill and knowledge to, you know, and for me that I find wildly inspiring and, and obviously getting tons of ideas from what they're doing. Um, I have another friend who works in a restaurant in Paris affiliated with the Palazzo de Tokyo and um, they're doing, you know, what was inspiring for me was he was just starting the restaurant when I was out there visiting and he was working with like, you know, salt farmers in the south of France to just get big bags of salt come instead of like individual boxes. And for him, he was able to really like the alcohol they serve at the restaurant. They don't even buy individual bottles. They buy if they're buying gin, they're buying from a gin purveyor and just doing large like glass reusable jars of the alcohol. Like not, you know, it's so, so thoughtful in so many levels. And I really, really thought that was like so smart. And it just seemed like they just had the support to do that pretty not I mean, nothing is easy of course but like it wasn't they weren't getting told no you know they were they were people were hesitant but like really you know were really open to trying it 
I mean, I'm not going to ask you for your financial records at, at Raynard, but having an all-day hotel restaurant, you have some purchasing power. Yeah. And you can change the scope and scale of sure. things. And uh, that's what, you know, I hope more restaurants take to heart, too, yeah. is that it's it's not just an industry. Like, it's an industry that can change other sure, industries. yeah. I mean, that's sort of like, for me, year, year two, you know, is like really like you know, not just being in the kitchen all the time, really trying to get out and be on the forefront of a couple things, you know, and, and definitely that kind of stuff is a, pri- a huge priority. Um, you know, just trying to be a mentor and try to be, you know, at least be a really good example for other people. Yeah, and your food is delicious. I mean, we didn't even have to talk about it because that is just a given. But what are some of your favorite dishes that you have on menu right now that that are just so soul-satisfying that you might not have to think about all the other energies that you spend on these ideas? Uh, I mean, this I mentioned rabbit earlier, but we're doing... we're taking the legs, braising the legs separately, and then breading and frying them. So we have, like, delicious fried rabbit legs for lunch. Who doesn't want to eat that? And then we take the middle, the saddle part of the rabbit, and rub it in chicken fat, hang it in the hearth, give it a light smoke, and then whey braise it and serve it with, like, grilled polenta, fresh snap peas, spinach, parsley oil. Like, it's just, like... I don't know. It's just very beautiful and also just really has nice tang. The rabbit is so moist and tender. I just, um, yeah, I don't know. That's kind of like a really fun dish that like kind of came out of nowhere that just feels really satisfying. And because it's braised in a way, not heavy. And because it's rabbit, it's just kind of a light, clean thing. And then any utilization of the vegetables right now, just really, I feel really fortunate to work with so many farmers that are just providing us such high quality stuff right now that really almost don't need too much. You know, we're, we have the fortunate of adding wood smoke or a char to something, but it's, you know, things don't really need much right now. And that's, it's nice to be simple again. I hope to be in for that rabbit soon. It sounds delicious, but does this change your menu or portion size when you said before, you know, only order what you're going to consume. It's an interesting thing to hear from a chef who's trying to pedal and push. Yeah, I I definitely don't like, I'd like to think that the food that I serve is not large portions, but they're not, they're not tiny either, you know? And I think sometimes when people, you know, people as in like my manager, like somebody a little higher up than me, like would be like, Hey, we would really like to see a little more food on. I just, I'd rather price things accordingly than just pile the food on because I just, I would, one, I want people to feel like, like nurtured at the end of their meal, not like they want to roll over and die and like they've overeaten. Um, that is hugely important to me. I think as, as a chef who's been eating long enough and that feeling is just not a good feeling for me anymore. And, um, and yeah, and then comes like, I want to see clean plates come back. I don't want to see like, Oh, a bunch of food left over or, a bunch of food wasted like so I think for me portion size has been really key and I think for the most part I have a lot of support backing me on that and and you can't sell a spell sustainability without sustain and yeah. it, it's not about being gluttonous at that point it's about giving somebody enough to sate themselves and sustain themselves not being overzealous sure. totally well that much <laughs> and more is happening behind the scenes at Raynard <laughs> Stop by for the rabbit, see Christina. And do you have a website? Do you have a way people can see these fabrics? Because you use them as headscarves, you use them as wraps. Yeah, um, I don't yet. I do have a website. I don't have it up and running. I need 
keep keep stay tuned. We I will. Guess. <laughs> we will keep tabs on everything that you do. Thank you so much for being. Thanks on. for having me. You've been listening to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkell. Hoping to have you back here next Tuesday at three. A big thank you to the Sexton Irish Whiskey, music by Cookies and Matt Patterson Engineering. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.